So we all have a, something that scares us. For uh, NBA guard uh, Terry Rozier, it's squirrels. <laughs> yeah. They're too sneaky, he says to one reporter. Rozier, who says he isn't afraid of much and actually talks a, a pretty big game about his history as a street boxer, says that squirrels just creep him out. So you're a street boxer who's afraid of squirrels, says the reporter. Yeah, I'm just not a squirrel guy. It's funny. To think of a big, strong, professional athlete who seems to have this bit of a tough guy image and this tough history who's afraid of squirrels, of all things. Doesn't make sense. But of course, our fears don't have to make sense, right? We all have things that we're afraid of. Things that throw us off our game. Things that occupy a, a much larger space in our life and our minds than they should. Sure, many of our fears are much more rational than squirrels. And it's good to acknowledge. Many of the things that we feel crushed by, those powers that um, feel too big for us to deal with, they're legitimate. They're real things, not to be underestimated. But real or imagined, our fear consumes us. It shakes whatever tough guy image that we want to put on. Our fears become our masters. This was the case for the Ephesians. Struggling, as we've shown to see themselves as this new people free from these huge powers that oppressed them, the world and the flesh and the devil. And in Ephesians, and particularly that third power, the devil, this malignant power, these things that are too big for any person to actually do anything about, it was a very strong cultural fear. We talked uh, our first week in Ephesians about the religious importance of Ephesus in Western Asia, in the Roman Empire. This, this central hub for the worship of Artemis in particular. But within the, the Roman world and this pluralistic uh, religion that they had built. All these other gods as well. And in the ancient world, what it looked like to, to worship the gods and to, to um, call out to them was actually asking the gods, people like Artemis or gods like Artemis, to rewrite fate, to overcome evil spirits, to protect them from natural disasters because, well, we just can't do that ourselves, because you and I and everyone in Ephesus is powerless against fate, against evil spirits, against a world full of earthquakes and warfare and all these things. And 
remember, even those who were converted into this new faith, Christianity, they struggled to give up the worship of their old gods. They struggled to give up the magical practices that were very, very common in Ephesus. And in this part of Ephesians 1, Paul is leaning hard into the fears of Ephesus. I think all those fears, the world, the devil, and the flesh, but the devil in particular, those larger than anything we can imagine kind of powers. And he uses this language throughout the passage that actually alludes to Roman and Asian spiritual texts, as well as Jewish mysticism, that actually pokes at the Ephesians and the reliance on these things. Trying to get them to acknowledge the deep fears that they had, that they were oppressed by. Today, we have the same fears. They have different faces. Most of us are not fearing fate or evil spirits. Most of us don't look at the weather and natural disasters and warfare and attribute them to to forces that are beyond us that are actively trying to get us. But I think we might want to poke at that a little bit. <laughs> Paul never once denounces the Ephesians' belief in evil, in magic, even in fate. He doesn't tell them, you're silly. I actually think us rational folks of the 21st century have explained away real dangers that the Ephesians were much more aware of than we were. Scripture is consistent in its understanding of spiritual warfare, of the oppression of spiritual evil, the devil. But we happily shrug these off and place our fears elsewhere, but, but they're the same fears. The practical spirits of our era, if you will. Scarcity. What can I do about scarcity? Dwindling resources. Bankruptcy and debt, recession, the lurk behind every corner. The stock market dips and we shudder. Inflation skyrockets and we tremble. So we say our prayers to the gods of finance. We trust them to protect us. We're afraid of the wrath of war and foreign powers, that evil of competing superpowers or malignant forces lurking in the shadows, the drumbeat of war in our news cycle, allies and enemies posture, they fight, and we worry. Powerful leaders make powerful gestures, and we are terrified. So what do we do? We pray to our national and military gods, thankful that at least we have the biggest guns and the biggest bombs, and hopeful that that will keep us safe. We 
We're afraid of the devils of disaster and disease, sickness and death. That evil of environmental catastrophe that we can't overcome. The earthquake, the tsunami, the environmental collapse. That virus or disease that will finally wipe us all out. So what do we do? We pray to our gods of protection and health, the ones that promise to save us from sickness and collapse are ones that promise us that these things aren't that big of a deal. We don't need to worry about them. We fear the spirit of violence and crime, that evil that lives in the other, that lurks outside our homes at night, that accosts us in the streets, that threatens our lives and our belongings. So we pray to our gods of protection and security and strength and we trust them to see us through. And, and listen, I don't name any of these sarcastically. These are real powers in our world. They are. Scarcity, warfare, disaster, illness, violence, death. These are real powers. And if we take scripture seriously, these are powers that are the result of sin. They are the powers of evil. They're just as real as the spiritual powers that the Ephesians feared. We live in a world that is broken, that is dangerous, that is unmerciful. So it's no surprise that we turn to things that we hope can protect us. Just as it's no surprise that the Ephesians, they, they kept their magical texts and they continued to make sacrifices to these gods because they needed something to protect them. But what Paul wants the Ephesians to see, what he wants us to see, is that while the powers that oppress us are real, they have become witness to a greater power. So he comes in blasting with both barrels to tell us what this power really looks like. He tells us of this immeasurable greatness of his power. If we wanted to translate this more directly, it's something like the powerful, mighty strength of God. The good English teacher in me wants to mark Paul down for redundance. But it's a triple assertion of God's power where he's leaning hard into the magnitude of God. And at the same time, we don't get to see this because we don't read the same things the Ephesians did. But in the same way, he's alluding to these actual common magical texts in Ephesus that most of the readers would likely know. He says, I know that you're concerned about the powers of this world, but let me tell you that the power of God is greater. Paul's God is powerful. Actually powerful in the same ways that those that oppress the Ephesians are powerful, but also powerful in different and greater ways. 
And he goes on to emphasize the unique and magnificent power of God by highlighting the point in history where this power is most profoundly felt. Of course he does, right? If I'm going to tell you the, the power of my God, if I'm going to, to go out there in the midst of this Roman um, pantheon and tell you why the God that I represent is better, I'm going to tell you a story, right? And in the ancient world, those stories are pretty common. It was either this is how God created or this is how God just totally destroyed. It's one of the two. Creation or military, you know, might. One of those things. Paul's is a little bit different. The story that he tells, that point that God's power is most profoundly seen in the world, The unsurpassed power of God is demonstrated most clearly not in an act of creation, though it is an act of recreation, technically. Not an act of warfare, though it is technically a great victory over his enemies. But rather, it's demonstrated in the gospel itself. And the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the greatest act, the most powerful act that God has ever done, Paul says. It was worked out, and here's that phrase again, in Christ. His power was worked out in Christ, in raising him from the dead, defeating death, that greatest power that anyone has ever known, like ubiquitously through all cultures. The biggest enemy, that's death. In ascending Jesus to heaven, where he is seated in power over all things. He says all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. Actually, these are words that are used both in Jewish mysticism and in pagan texts to describe all these other powers. Jesus Christ is seated above everybody. Whatever power you're afraid of, whatever God you are sacrificing to, he's seated above them. Above every name, Paul says, pushing here, into the magical practices of naming. I could go on about magic in the ancient Near East, but naming was very important. And Paul hits it here. God's power was at work in a way that was unique to any other God, any other power, in the way he became man. He lived among us. He died and was raised again in Jesus Christ. And this is who the Ephesians now serve. What are you afraid of? He says. Evil spirits, fate, curses, drought and famine, scarcity and poverty, war and oppression, natural disaster or ecological collapse, sickness, violence, death, existential dread, squirrels, 
What are you afraid of? Paul asks and then follows it up with this biggest truth of the powers of the universe. That these real powers that we're afraid of next to God, they're tiny. They are squirrels. Even death, that greatest of enemies, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that death will be destroyed through the power of Jesus Christ. God is more powerful than anything the Ephesians fear. And he has consolidated his power into his son, Jesus Christ. And he has placed him above all of these powers, with these powers at his feet. This is the language of victory. So whatever you are afraid of, it's probably legitimate. But if you knew the truth about power, you actually would fear God. And maybe that's encouraging, or maybe that's just even more terrifying. Thanks. There's an even bigger one out there. It's like, I'm going to help the guy who's afraid of squirrels by pointing out there's a grizzly bear in his yard. And actually, that's biblical. Scripture talks a lot about the fear of God. And, and while I don't think fear means what we want it to mean when we read that, it, it is acknowledging that he is so far above us that not to fear and respect him is just foolish. But fear of God is not the same as fear of these other powers, not for us to hear the rest of Paul's message here. Because he is explicit, not only is Jesus the wielder of God's greatest power, the strongest that has ever been, but he wields it in your favor. This is what really sets Jesus apart from just about any other God. These ancient powerful deities, these powers of, of the devil and the world and the flesh, all of these things, they are wielding power for themselves, for their own sakes. None of them would ever use them for me. Maybe if I did something they really liked, they'd like give me a little reward. But Jesus doesn't ask for sacrifices to earn his favor. Jesus becomes the sacrifice because he loves. Paul tells the Ephesians that they are, they are, his glorious inheritance. The saints are his glorious inheritance. This is actually a very consistent theme in the Old Testament if we follow the way that God speaks about his people. It's all over the place. Deuteronomy, Samuel, Kings, everywhere. His people are his treasure. The great prize that Jesus is given by his Father, that's us. 
And he, the most powerful being, the most, most tremendous power that has ever existed, uses his power, that immeasurable greatness of his power, toward us who believe, Paul says here. That seems huge. That's because it is. The greatest power ever seen displayed not selfishly, but for your sake. Epitomized not through creation or might, but through love. This is profound. Not just in its scope, but in its very nature. And then it gets even bigger than that. Paul's already pushed the envelope here. People in his world are like, you're a crazy man. But he goes further. Paul tells us that in Christ, not only does this power exist, and not only is it used for us, but in Christ, the Ephesians, and you and I have access to the power ourselves. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church which is his body. See, Jesus is put in power. All these other powers are broken and crushed under his feet. Great victory. It's what we kind of expect. And then Jesus has made the head over all things for the church, who is his body. And being his body means a couple of things. First, it means we're connected to him in an important way. This ancient concept of of headship and what the head was in the body and and anywhere that it it was layered over was that the head is where all power and all faculty for the body come from. And so Jesus, as the head of the church, is not just the leader of the church or the ruler of the church. He is the source of power for the church. And as his body, we actually become a participatory part of the power of God. The head might source the power, but what manifests it? The body does. So the truth of this great power for those of us who believe is that in him, we we have a power that is greater than all the powers that we fear, It's greater than all the powers that would oppress us. It's greater than anything that we might turn to or pray to to protect us from these powers. And it is not just there for us, but it is in us. In you, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, is the greatest power the universe because Jesus Christ is in us and this opens up one of those places of tension and mysteries of our faith it's the preacher's great dilemma I think because a preacher I am always either over promising or under promising I can never quite get the balance right it's just the risk that we run there's lots of pressure in the church out there to acknowledge a real power in Christ this truth that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And then we turn it into that old name it and claim it theology. 
All power is given to you. So if you really mean it, you can have any victory that you desire. And I think that's a serious misunderstanding of both our access to God's power and also the world that we live in. Because this understanding, when it minimizes the real powers that plague this broken world. As I said, these things are real. Both the things the Ephesians feared and the things that we fear. And we don't just dismiss them. We don't pretend that they don't exist. It sets up the system of failure where those who encounter real struggle and real tragedy, what it really means is you're just not in touch with the power that you should be. Shame on you. That's just not true. Actually, we're told that as we follow Jesus and we exercise this power that we're going to come into conflict with these other things. We're going to suffer under these other things. We're going to feel them maybe even more acutely than our neighbors who are not exercising and representing that greater power that threatens them. This is something you're going to hear from me a lot. I'm going to repeat it over and over again because I think it's something we struggle with, something that we have a difficulty understanding. So it's my job to keep saying it until we do, and that's going to be like forever. But our world is actually broken. Like the powers of evil in this world, the world, the devil, and the flesh, they are here, they are strong. And while they are defeated, they're not going anywhere right now until Jesus comes back and finishes this whole thing. And so there are real things that can and will hurt men, women, and children who name Jesus above all other names. They just are. You might not see that thing that you fear disappear. It may look into the face of this new power that you have and say, you know what, I'm going to fight even harder. Scarcity, insecurity, illness, warfare, disaster, death, they still plague God's creation and they will until glory. And it would be unkind and untrue for me to tell you otherwise. But... The power of God in Jesus Christ is real. And it is yours. And this power will win. And sometimes we even get to feel and see the victory of it right in front of us. Not all the time. We're waiting for that big time. But sometimes we do. So as the body of Jesus Christ the body of the head that is now put into this relationship where the power is sourced from him and quite often enacted in us. We have agency in this world in this way and we should seek to see the poor made rich, to see the sick made well, to see wars turn to peace, to see violence change to love, to look the devil in the face and say, you have no power over me. And we should live our lives in that confidence. We should strive to see that power 
alive in us and in the lives of our neighbors around us. And we should live more and more without fear. Even in the face of these things that honestly might destroy us. Because we know that we have new life. Because we know that our God is the one who was destroyed but resurrected. So I'm just going to assume you all have your game faces on now, right? All your fears are gone. be honest with each other, this is hard. This is really hard. We're really bad at living in this kind of authority and confidence. This power sounds great, but where do we actually get it? Unfortunately, Paul's pretty explicit about this as well. He leads with it. I reordered Paul a little bit in the way I went through this. Sorry, Paul. But he tells us how we know this power and how we live with this power and how we live without fear. And this is what he says. He knows that the Ephesians loved their magic practices. And what Paul prescribes here is a deeper kind of magic. The magic of the cross and the resurrection. He says that in those mighty acts, we have this power in us. We have it in us. See, in the economy of the cross, we don't do anything in order to grow in Christ. We don't do anything in order to gain that power. We grow in Christ in order to do anything. If you're a follower of Jesus, his power is already yours. To grow in that reality and the confidence that comes with it, what we must do is we must grow in our understanding and our knowledge of Christ. Look what Paul says. What he wants for the Ephesians. He says, verse 17 and 19, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of the revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the, in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. He says, God give you wisdom, revelation, knowledge, enlightened eyes, and some more knowledge. Paul wants us to know Jesus Christ, to know what he has done for us, to know who he is, to know he is powerful and to know his power is ours. And the key to this knowing is having the spirit of wisdom, he says, that's the Holy Spirit, make it more and more real to us. How do you have this power? By knowing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and lived a life in the mess down with us, suffered and died for our sake and was risen from the grave and ascended into heaven and is seated above all these powers. 
And the more you know that, the more you walk in that, the more confidence that you have that that power is alive in you. But knowing is tricky, and it takes the Holy Spirit. And and knowing knowing is a whole thing in Scripture. There's this this story in the first couple chapters of the Gospel of John um, where the apostle creates this tension around the idea of knowing. Actually, I would say the first three chapters of John is all about this tension between knowing and, like, knowing. And there's a scene that happens in Jerusalem where Jesus goes and does these mighty works. And he says that many saw and believed, but, like, didn't know him. And we scratch our heads at that. What is it, why on earth would it say they saw and believed? But actually it says he said he didn't believe in them. Because there's this tension that's showing up that I think Paul understands here. That believing in a pragmatic sense, seeing and acknowledging this power from out here is not what we're called to. We're called to know Jesus Christ. It's not about learning or understanding. It's about knowing In this way, the Spirit is deeply involved in. It's about having our eyes opened. It's about coming in contact with Jesus Christ. And this is the narrative that happens over and over again at the beginning of John. Or these specific people come in contact with Jesus. He looks at them and he knows them. And they know him, and they believe. The same kind of knowing that Paul had when Jesus literally knocks him off his course and changes his life. See, we need to see Jesus with these enlightened eyes that Paul talks about, the eyes of our heart, eyes that know him to be our king, a real man, a real God, truly died and truly resurrected, not as some idea not as some system that we can hang on to, but as Jesus Christ, the real Jesus Christ, who loves us. And the only way that we can do that is as his spirit that lives in us draws us into deeper knowledge of that. Going back to the cross, remembering what he has done for us and knowing him more. And as we know this more, as we see him clearly, as we see him more and more right in front of us, as we engage with his word, as we partake in his sacraments, as we love and are loved by his people, Then we live more and more in him and we see the reality of his power in our lives and we can live without fear. So are you scared? Look into the eyes of Jesus who is your hope. Are you vulnerable? Look into the eyes of Jesus who is your shelter. Are you empty? Look into the eyes of Jesus who is your abundance. 
Are you weak? Look into the eyes of Jesus who is your strength. Are you sick? Look into the eyes of Jesus who is your health. Are you dead? Listen, we're all dead in our trespass and our sins, are we not? We look into the eyes of Jesus Christ who is our life, in whom we have power over all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... (laughs) We thank you, though thank you feels trite in light of this reality that you have told us. That while we are weak, we are so weak, oppressed by so many powers, that you, the greatest power that there is, have loved us in such a way, actually have demonstrated your power through that love so that we might be strong in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that more than anything else that you do here at Grace and in each of our lives, we pray that you would draw us to know your Son, Jesus Christ, more and more, that we might understand the great power that was manifested in him and in him lives in us. We pray these things for your glory and your kingdom in the name of your son, amen.